My parents kept telling me, focus on the survivors, focus on the victims. When you're a journalist, we get this kind of obsession with the bad guy almost, and we're going to go after them. But forget everything else. It's about these people that have been wronged. That's Charlie Specht, an intrepid local investigative reporter from WKBW in Buffalo, talking about the sources who were invaluable to his 2020 DuPont award-winning reporting. Hello and welcome to another episode of On Assignment, the podcast that brings you conversations with award-winning journalists at Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright. I run the prizes department at the J School, and I'm joined as always by my co-host and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen, who runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. Hey, Lisa. Hi, Abby. How are things going in DuPont land? Well, we are about halfway through our submission period for the 2021 DuPont Award. The deadline, as always, to apply is July 1st. So things are really kicking into gear, and I'm thinking we're going to get a lot more. We've been seeing really strong submissions, and um, looking at them has got me reflecting on just the immense power and responsibility of local reporting. Sure, especially now with these protests breaking out across the country in the wake of George Floyd's murder. Right. Watching recent videos of local journalists with their limited resources trying to report in real time on what's happening in their cities putting their lives in danger and in some cases being injured or arrested while doing it, it makes us think about everything they're up against. Yes, and all this on top of the other economic pressures that are decimating local newsrooms, and of course the critical and dangerous reporting on the coronavirus. Which brings us to the person at the center of today's podcast, our final episode of the 11th season, Charlie Specht, who took on some pretty big battles of his own with his DuPont-winning reporting. You could definitely say that. To use a biblical reference, which is somewhat appropriate in this story, Charlie was David, and in this case, his Goliath was the powerful Catholic Church. Yeah, some background on his reporting. We've all heard stories about abuse within the Catholic Church. And in Buffalo, the revelations were not just about rampant abuse by priests, but also about the higher-ups, who went to extraordinary lengths to cover it all up, even as they were telling the public that they were cleaning it up. Everyone in the local media was reporting the story, of course, but Charlie's investigation went deeper, and it was like something out of All the President's Men or Spotlight. There were mysterious whistleblowers, secret meetings in parking lots, and the eventual resignation of the top church official, Bishop Richard Malone. Charlie spoke to our professor, Nina Alvarez, this past January, the morning after he picked up his silver baton at our annual DuPont ceremony, in a conversation that focused on sourcing and how to treat your sources effectively and with sensitivity. One of his whistleblowers even called him the source whisperer. You'll hear more about that later on in the episode. As always, it's an edited conversation. So let's get to it now, starting with a short clip from the story itself, which introduces you to that whistleblower. Her name is Siobhan O'Connor, and for several years, she was Bishop Malone's personal secretary. It was Malone's handling of two accused priests that finally convinced her it was time to quit her job. She wrote in emails to the bishop that she was becoming morally allergic to that job. That's when I approached O'Connor, and we had the first of many secret meetings in this abandoned parking lot. She began to reveal a trove of secret documents that implicated Bishop Malone in the mishandling of clergy sexual abuse allegations. And I remember thinking that I, that I would 
trust you with this information, that you would not treat it in a salacious manner. I could tell you had great compassion for the victims and that you also had respect for our church. Exposing the bishop's actions was not a decision O'Connor came to easily. I devoted my life to working for him. I knew him very well. He had invited me into his home. I had traveled with him. And yet I realized that sometimes you have to have a loyalty to something greater uh, and an allegiance to the common good versus someone's personal good. Especially when I thought about the survivors, I thought I would be betraying them if I didn't do something. So that's Siobhan O'Connor. She's the bishop's secretary, bravest person I know. And um, it actually took us quite a while to meet. Somebody emailed me, and her name was Vera. I, it was, that was not her real name. It was Siobhan. She was using a pseudonym and said, keep digging. There's people inside the, the building, inside the Catholic Center who are, who are on your side, who, you know, who wants you to keep going. So when we would have press conferences, I, I had said to myself, there's a very good chance that this person is in the room. So I was trying to ask the kind of questions to show that I knew what I was talking about and the questions that would really kind of get at the bishop and try to get at the truth. Um, and that, I think, sent a message to the whistleblowers. I want us to discuss more about sources and, and how you, what is this, the approach to talking to people? Every organization is a, a divided house, most likely. There's people that like the way things are going, don't like the way things that are going. And if you can, you know, build those relationships with people, you have to know when to push and when to kind of back off. So uh, another employee at the diocese came to me he was like kind of a disgruntled employee who had quit, didn't have a lot of information about sexual abuse, but had some financial information. And she had mentioned, well, you know, this bishop's secretary, um, she's not very happy with the way things are going. So I just kind of made a mental note. And I said, well, would she talk? Well, no, she, you know, not now. It's, so I didn't push. And then, you know, many months later, as we're doing these stories, another source said to me, the bishop's secretary quit today. So... Um, I literally spent two or three days, around three o'clock every day, I knew the Catholic Center shut down at four, I would sit outside the diocese with a pair of binoculars <laughs> and try to, like, see what she might look like and, you know, what does she drive? It felt kind of creepy. Um, I wouldn't recommend this approach for, like, every story you do. <laughs> I knew there was, you know, I'm following this young girl around, like, uh, kind of like, you know, acting like some sort of a stalker or something, but I'm really just trying to find, you know, trying to find a, a door to knock on and approach her. And um, we ended up, I, we ended up, I ended up following her, and she pulled over into this parking lot, and I thought, I, obviously, I blew my cover. I'm, like, going to get the cops to pull, you know, called on me here. But um, she had just happened to pull over, and so I texted her the first time. I had her number, but I never texted her and said, I'm in the blue car. Would you want to talk? So we came over and <laughs> it was kind of like, you know. And what was that first conversation like? That first conversation, I just tried to keep it real basic and I, I wanted her to trust me. I didn't want to like roll down my window and be like, do you have any documents, you know, in your trunk? You know, you've got to start slow here. I mean, it's like, it's like dating in a way, you know, you don't want to like start at 90 miles an hour here and, you know, 
please spill your guts to me here and tell me everything you Wanna know. Want to get married? <laughs> yeah, exactly, you know. And so we had this conversation, and she was ready to talk, and she said, I'm, I'm just gave my three weeks notice, so I'm going to be still working there for three weeks. So I said, okay, well, might want to look into this file and this file and see what, you know. And um, it wasn't a situation where, like, a disgruntled employee were like, I'm going to get back at my employer. This was something that she had really wrestled with for a long time. And so also it was a lesson in trying to work with your sources because there was almost every whistleblower that I've, that I've ever talked to, they do this thing and then they go to bed and wake up the next morning and they're like, oh my God, what did I just do? <laughs> and they call you back in a panic like, am I going to get arrested? You know, can you give me all the documents back? And you, know, you have to walk them through almost. I had explained the difference between the files that she had from the diocese. I said, these are not like classified documents like by the U.S. government, so you literally cannot go to jail for, for doing it. You can be, and I was honest, you can be sued in civil court, and, but it's probably not going to happen because it would look horrible if they did that. But from that point on, we did meet. We had to kind of come up with a location because she didn't want to be seen coming to the station. We met um, like a picnic bench on this, behind this building where she would like deliver information to my house sometimes and she had them stored at a third location so you work you kind of work this this stuff out and then I would say more so than other stories when you get documents it's not like great let's put these on tv I mean you need to documents are, are great but you have to know the context of the document so there's a lot of maybe jargon there's catholic church jargon being Catholic, I knew a lot, of, a lot of what the terms meant, but didn't know all of them. And you want to make sure when you put that out, you're going against the Catholic Church here, but it applies to any story. If they can hang you on one detail and try to pull apart your entire story, that's what they will do. And I knew that they were going to be trying to do that. The church had one of the best criminal defense attorneys in Buffalo. They threatened to um, like put us in jail or something. They said that I was hacking their emails. Um, and that's uh, how are you getting this information? And then they sent a cease and desist order later that night, saying not only are you ordered to like destroy the stolen material, but give us proof of its destruction. At that point, it's like above my level. I can get our lawyers involved. <laughs> Clearly, a lot of the success you've had in your story coverage was your ability to talk to people, and you know you are part of a generation that has a hard time talking to people. Yeah. <laughs> so how did you develop this new skill? I had texted a lot, of, a lot of sources. I had talked with abuse survivors who were comfortable emailing me, but, and then when we would try to set something up, it was like they didn't want to necessarily take that big step. So I always try to look at it from their point of view, and in their mind, they're like, you're like this quasi-celebrity person that they're like, oh my God, if I meet with you, does that mean I'm going to be on like live TV tonight or something? And you had to explain to them that just to meet, you know, sort of chat, you know, off the record, um, just get coffee, you know, that sort of thing. And you have to meet them kind of at their level and, and where they're comfortable with. I remember we actually had a, a second whistleblower, Father Richard, who's also the most courageous person I know. I, I remember I heard the bishop was out of town and so I waited outside of the bishop's mansion, and I heard Father Richard like beer. 
So I bought, I went to a brewery and got him like a, like a crowler can of beer. And um, I was like, well, I'll just knock on the door because the bishop's not going to be here and like offer like this kind of like goodwill offering and be like, you know, would you want to get together sometime and just chat? And um, then as I'm walking up to the bishop's grand mansion, I'm like, this is the maybe like the dumbest thing I've ever done. <laughs> I, so I just, you know, I just left the beer on the, on the step and, and it it doesn't always work out, you know, but months later, I think... Did you leave it and run? <laughs> pretty <laughs> much. Me. But you try things, you don't always know that it's going to work, you, but you try to meet people, like, at their level, wherever they are. Sometimes it works out, but I think it's important to be genuine. Like, if something feels... It, to me, it felt wrong, even though I had her number to call the whistleblower. How did you have her number? Through the woman who came beforehand from the diocese who had the financial information. She had given it to me, and I said, oh, I'm not going to use it right now, but just in case I need it, well, you know. And it was really, I call them kind of like buffer sources, people who are not necessarily privy to the information, but they know people who are. You also said you cold-called a sexual abuse survivor. How, how do you do that? What was that like? That was really awkward. And one of the things... I think is important is to um, call and talk to them as a person first. I mean, obviously, ethically speaking, you have to identify yourself as a as a reporter. But a lot of the abuse survivors that we talked to had never actually told anyone about the abuse. Like we had a guy who said, "Okay, well, I guess if we're going to go forward and do this interview, then I'm going to have to tell my wife that I was abused." You know, like oh my God, this is, but they, it's important to, if you believe them, to tell them that you believe them. And I always kind of apologized at first. I said, I'm, I'm just, I'm really sorry about, you know, what happened to you. Well, I'd like to know why whistleblowers talk to us. And I'd like to invite your whistleblowers to join us. So Siobhan O'Connor and Father, Father Richard, Richard. We have them join here. Us. They know how to put mics on now. <laughs> so I think people actually are really smart and they sense sincerity. They know BS. They know when someone's trying to play them. They know when someone's got an agenda. Siobhan mentions that she knew that you wouldn't do anything salacious. How did you know that? Because I had been listening and I had been watching Charlie, uh, not only on his broadcasts, but I was there on the second floor watching a press conference that took place, and Charlie asked the exact question that I had hoped would be asked, and Bishop Malone lied. And I created that fake email account that night, and I emailed him the next day, and I said, you're right, keep asking those questions, because you're not being told the truth, but the truth is there. Uh, so I was, I was watching, I mean, I, I started to watch his reporting like, like you would watch your favorite TV show. I never missed <laughs> an episode. Uh, and I got to know him on that professional level very, very well. What was the question? I don't even remember. It was the question about when you asked Bishop Malone if he was aware of the challenges with the phone system. Oh, yeah. And that there was this backlog of survivors. Mm -hmm. And Bishop Malone said, well, I just found out about that on Monday. And he'd found out three weeks before. Yeah, because we had gotten sort of anonymous tips that they set up this essentially like phony settlement program for survivors where it's like please we want you to come forward and and tell us and then they call and there's like nobody there it's you know the most 
horrible thing you can do to somebody. So I thought, well, that's a good thing to ask him at the news conference because, A, it's like inside info. It kind of like, I figured this is going to freak him out that we know this. And then B, I thought, well, if we, if we ask it at the news conference, maybe they'll fix it, you know, and, and do something about it. Did they? Well, they did. That began the process. It was still ostensibly an answering machine for a while, but they did make some effort. Um, and then the other thing, too, that really was uh, very important to me was that I was also watching how Charlie asked not just questions of Bishop Malone and the diocese, but the questions he asked to survivors. And I knew that he had compassion for them by the questions he asked. And I knew that he was aware of the trauma that they were still going through, that this is not something that's just limited to the time period of abuse as a child or an adolescent, but it's with them throughout their life. And I recognized in him and his expression in his eyes, I recognized the sorrow I was experiencing because I was taking those same kind of calls and hearing those same sorts of stories. Uh, so that was a very personal aspect of my trust in Charlie, but it wasn't that I just wanted him to go after the church. I knew that they needed to be held accountable, but I knew that the greatest story here was the human suffering, and I could tell he respected the survivors. My parents kept telling me, focus on the survivors, focus on them, focus on the victims, because it's easy, like when you're a journalist, we get this kind of obsession with the bad guy almost, and we're going to go after them, but it's, it really is this story that we, it's about them. That's what the whole, I mean, forget everything else. It's about these people that have been wronged. So that's, when I was asking those questions, I was just trying to think, you know, what would they want me to ask? You know, you're giving, when we talk about giving voice to the voiceless, sometimes it's, what would they ask at this press conference if they were here, you know? And Father Richard, what, how did you decide to participate in some way? I came uh, towards the very end. Uh, I joke that we were bookends, you know. Um, I provided uh, uh, Mr. Specht here, Charlie, with uh, with the recordings of the bishop and the me uh, the senior staff, and and uh, also uh, my my private conversation with him. In New York State, you can uh, record without uh, consent of the parties. You know, just one party consent, right? Yep. Is that what you call it? Thank God. Thank God. Yeah, for that. Yes. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, uh, was not a citizen yet, and the question was, you know, if I speak up, would that uh, jeopardize my ability to stay in this country? And and it's not simply about ability to stay here, but to be a priest. You know, it's not like you can, uh, being a Catholic priest, you can't simply go somewhere else, and just knock at the church's door and could you please hire me? You know, it doesn't work like this. Um, but uh, the thing I want to focus in answering this is, is the reputation, because when I first uh, was approached by, by Charlie uh, through the text about Ibir, um, you know, the, the reputation I had, I've learned you know, about, about Charlie was through a different circle, you know, through the circle of, of senior staff meetings, of meetings with, with the attorneys, diocesan attorneys, and hearing the stuff uh, you know, about him. You know, so he was this evil guy who was, you know, trying to destroy the church. And when you, uh, I know this is a technical term, development of sources, uh, we are people, <laughs> you know. And, and I'm, I'm glad, Charlie, you talked about relationships because it is the relationships you're building. And I knew I could trust this guy because of, of other people um, that he worked with. And it, it, for me, it was not a blind, blind trust. It, you know, I, I had people that vouched for, 
for Charlie and I've seen his work and and that's what eventually led me to uh, releasing the, the recordings to, to Charlie was his reputation. And I think that's, that's the, uh, the reason I'm here today is to honor uh, you know, somebody that honored us. You, you did not pressure. You know, you, you knew I had, you know, I gave you the recordings, but I didn't give him permission to <laughs> go ahead with releasing them, you know. And I understand how difficult it must be for a jur journalist. You know, you have the information that you can run with it. But, but <laughs> I, I really, really respect that he waited till I was ready because it, it affected my life. Thank you. And, you know, I, I don't know what to say. Um, I'm so grateful that, that they came forward because that to me is, is the ultimate. That is a holy thing to do is to come forward. And I think the, the verse goes, um, thou shall see the truth and the truth shall set you free. Yep. Um, I thought what we were doing was something honorable, even if it was going to cause a temporary pain here. I'd like to ask about what has been the fallout, and even for, for Charlie, too. You, I think you said something memorable last night that was made everybody chuckle, but at the same time, I think it, it really drove home like how personally difficult it has been for you, too. I think you said something like, my kids go to Catholic school, yeah. and they're wondering why is daddy going after the bishop? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it was kind of, my kids did go to Catholic school. We have since moved, and they go to public school now. But, um, but you know, it's got, like, awkward because I start to, like, learn information, and I'm like, oh, my God, this is, like, too much information. Um, and my kids are there. And then my wife is wondering, uh, would they try to use our kids as, I wasn't necessarily afraid they're going to be abused, but would they try to use our kids? And, and that just really gets tough. My brother also is, is in the process of becoming a priest right now, and so we started to get these nasty messages about him, trying to use him as leverage. Um, I think that, you know, Siobhan was really out there for a long time, many months, just kind of on a limb, so she faced a ton of public criticism. And I think Father Richard, you know, he won't tell you this, but his life has been dramatically changed. He's, you know, to the point where the, the bishop, you know, has done things to him to crack down as a whistleblower, to penalize him, um, and he has suffered greatly. He doesn't know what his future is going to be in the church. So, you know, I give all the credit to people who are willing to put themselves out there against their best interests, really, for something greater than themselves. Siobhan, what's been the impact for you? Well, things definitely got better, which is something I'm grateful for, and I hope that that will be the case for Father Richard. Um, but I do remember that the night that I gave Charlie the, the most incriminating pack of documents, and I was trembling on the outside, but even more so on the inside. And then I remember I, once I'd given them to him, I felt so much better, like the wave of nausea passed, and I, I knew it was the right thing to do. But you just don't know what's going to become of that information, what's going to become of yourself. Um, so yes, in the, in the early stages, I was certainly the, the most easy target for those who were very critical of Charlie's stories and of the truth coming out. There's really a defense mechanism, especially within uh, any kind of religious setting where people say, well, why would you attack the church? Why would you air its dirty laundry? And clearly, since I had done that, I was the one that they were going to um, express their ire to. Um, especially online, I learned, don't read the comments on anything. <laughs> <laughs> Never do it. Uh, I did it for three days, and, and then that was it. Um, 
but uh, you know, I, I did definitely struggle a little bit professionally because I, uh, you know, I, I left the job with the bishop. Obviously, there was a concern. You know, would I ever be able to get a job? Because people are not always going to be wanting that kind of person on their staff. Um, but fortunately, uh, around September of last year, I was hired by the Zero Abuse Project, and it's a group that works to support survivors of abuse, but also to prevent it in the future. So I'm a victim assistance civil specialist. And what's really amazing is I get to take calls from survivors. And instead of doing it surreptitiously, like I did with the bishop's office, I now get to do that as a part of my daily job. And that has been such an immense gift. Um, but certainly in those early days, I wish I could have just told myself, you know, like, it's going to be okay. Um, but I had Charlie there. He's the, the source whisperer. And uh, he really, it, it, the gift of his time was something that made so much, uh, had such an impact on me because I thought if he's willing to talk me through my latest moment of panic, uh, then, then he really does care about me. And it got me through those difficult days when I didn't know what was going to become of me. But I just, I knew I had someone who was going to help me as much as he could. Hi, Charlie. I'm Carissa. Um, so you are a Catholic reporting on and criticizing the Catholic Church, and obviously you faced a lot of backlash for that, but um, did that also potentially help you? And like, how do you navigate reporting on a community that you're a part of? Yeah, so I would say it did, it was tough at times. When I first started, I kind of was telling myself, well, I'm just doing my job, and you kind of put the personal part of it aside and do your job. But as it went on to like multi, you know, years that we're working on the story, it did take a personal toll, and it was just tough. I, there was times when I was sitting in church, and I just would get so angry, and I didn't really know why I was getting angry, but I just, you know, everything about the ceremony of the Mass, it was something that I used to love and cherish, and it became something that reminded me of, you know, these bad things. Um, but I did, you know, don't ever doubt that someone's going to talk to you. One, a lot of my best sources were Catholic priests who were good priests who had tried to report this stuff, and they were told to be quiet, basically. Um, and I didn't ever kind of broadcast that I was Catholic because I didn't want to put myself in the story. But when I would hear someone say, well, you know, I'm Catholic, and this really bothers me, I would say, like, I'm Catholic too, and it bothers me too, and I have kids, you know, so... It's okay to, to um, you know, to tell people and to, to be open about it because it, if you're struggling with it, because I think a lot of the people, Catholics in these stories were, are struggling with it. And I think it, when I tell people that, they're like, oh, okay. So you're not like on some, you know, crazy crusade to like bring down a religion. You're just kind of like doing your job. So Charlie, when you spoke to survivors, how did you navigate those difficult conversations with people who were in a very vulnerable position, probably reliving traumas for the first time in a long time? It was really tough. I don't know that there's, um, you know, I didn't have like a script here. So I was kind of just feeling it from interview to interview. So the first like big survivor interview we did was with a guy named David. He was just incredibly courageous, and he came up, drove up from Houston to like do this interview. So I knew it was important to him. But when he came up, I mean, you can imagine thinking about this for, for you know a trip from Houston to Buffalo. You know, he was kind of emotionally just you know drained and nervous, and you know he started crying. I think like five minutes into the interview, and 
we just kind of let him go and let him talk about it. And I wasn't going to like kind of pepper him with a bazillion questions. I always thought, you know, the details, which I do need to confirm and verify, I can always do that over the phone later. But like when, when the person's there in front of you, sometimes you do have to kind of just let them talk and think of them as, you know, be a human first. Don't be this like journalist machine that's, you know, like getting to, you know, getting all, checking all your boxes off. You kind of just have to like start from a human level and just, you know, at the end of the day, you can always just be respectful and kind of let them tell their story. And if I could say something too, I've talked to survivors who've spoken with Charlie and then with other journalists back home, and they've mentioned that when they spoke to other journalists, they often felt like they had to prove it, like they were being sort of interrogated more than interviewed, and they would always say, well, the great thing was that when I was talking to Charlie, I was just talking to Charlie. I think that really says it all, that, that it felt like a conversation, and that made such a difference. And uh, when I was interviewed by Charlie about my own, my own story of sexual assault, um, it, it really, when I'm thinking ra- right now about it, you know, when you mentioned you did let me tell my story. It was not an interrogation in front of the camera. And that's what I was afraid, that that's what always Bishop portrayed, who will be interrogated in front of cameras. And it wasn't so. It was an opportunity to 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 tell my story. Uh, and And I think that's, Thank you. <laughs> and just realizing that's what you did, you know, uh, allowed me to tell my story. Well, no, you're welcome. Thank you. I, it, another thing you can do is when you let people talk, it's not like you, you're going to be like a softy and not like ever question anything because so, some of the things you do want to have to verify just for the point of credibility. And, you know, you can have like with a survivor, you can have like an emotional, like I believe you and tell them that you believe them if you do. But you also have to verify like some details because think in your mind what they're saying I'm going to have to like tell the diocese later. And the diocese is first thing they're going to do is look up all their records and say was the priest assigned to this church at this time because if they weren't then that person's story doesn't even make sense. So when they would say like I was um, in third grade you know I would say like Oh, like, but like, what school are we at? You know, like, and I'm not doing it in an interrogation kind of way, but I'm checking that answer after the interview's over just to make sure. And I'm not going to call them up and be like, you're a liar or anything, but I'm going to say, well, wait, this answer, I looked in the book and it doesn't make sense. And maybe they have a good explanation, you know. In some of these cases, the priest just would abuse kids who were not in that school. And so it doesn't mean it disproves it, but. You can also just tell them, like, hey, I'm going to ask you some questions here, and, like, don't take it personally. I believe you, but I need to get the details because I've heard people say when reporters are trying to do that, it comes off to that person like they're under attack and like they're being questioned and not believed. So I find it difficult when I'm talking to victims um, to engage them and also take notes at the same time. Mm. Do you... Mm. Do you have a technique you could share, or do you not take notes while you just record it? So I do take notes. I, it's an old habit I developed from being a print reporter, you know, where we didn't have a camera or anything. And I've never been a huge fan of, um, like, having a, having a voice recorder just because before iPhones it used to be kind of clunky. Um, but I, I, do, I do record my stuff um, now just, just kind of out of habit, and you want to protect yourself too. But I do find that like when the interview's over, it's kind of like a whirlwind. You're like, whoa, holy cow, what what uh, just happened? And you're going to go back and look at the tape. But 
if someone says something in an interview, I try to write, like I'm not writing down a log of everything they said, but I, I'll write down like, hmm, that really, that like, that made my ears perk up. So I do try to jot things down just quickly, but I do think it's important to, you know, look at the person. You want to make eye contact. And you also, if you're too busy writing things down, then then you're not really like listening to, to get like a good follow-up question. So I think it, it is sort of a balance. Um, even in like the best print stories that I read, they don't have a ton of quotes, but I would say don't put a ton of pressure on yourself to write every single thing down because you're gonna be leaving 90% of it on the cutting room floor anyway. I think for students, They've asked you questions about how do you talk to someone who is traumatized, who's a survivor. Literally, they answer the phone. What do you say to them? Like, what is the first exchange that gets you into the conversation? Because that's, everybody gets stuck there. I usually say, hi, my name is Charlie Specht. I'm from Channel 7. And then I say, how are you doing today? And <laughs> I mean, really, I just ask them, how are you doing today? Good. Be like, Okay, good. And then just be like, hey, you know, I'm working on this story about um, priest abuse, and I just thought, like, maybe, like, I, I need your help. I'm trying to find out more information. Would you be able to help me? Uh, just, you know, tell them you, you do need their help and just kind of see how it goes from there. So I need your help. Would you be able to give me information, which is very general and is not like, were you abused? Yeah, you, I, yeah, you don't want to do that. Also, it's also not a bad thing to be like, you know, hey, do you think we could talk about this? Like, could I, could we set up a time? You don't want to like put them in this ultimate pressure situation where they've been like hiding this secret for 30 years and it's like, now's the time because I happen to pick up the phone and call you to tell you. You, you can like make, like create kind of a, an out for them almost like, you know, I'm doing this story. I just want to leave you my contact information. Just think about it. And, you know, maybe would you want to get together sometime just to chat? Like, you know, no, I, I, I'm not going to, no pressure kind of situation. You don't want to, like, put them in this bind almost. But, yeah. Um, I feel like we talked a lot about reputation, and I was wondering if your reputation has ever been challenged and um, with a story, justified or unjustified, and you felt like maybe you actually couldn't tell it and couldn't finish it. Um, if you could speak about that. Yeah, so it's been like almost to total, like constant character attacks since I started. <laughs> um, you know, first it was I'm out, out to get the Catholic Church, then it was well, my brother and I, who are, like, very close, and we totally, my brother's becoming a priest, we totally support each other. Then there was a rumor that they put out about, you know, we hate each other, and that's why I'm doing this. And um, there were rumors about all the three of us, you know, it, it was, it just got to be ridiculous. I, I, for the most part, just totally ignored them and just kind of put my head down and kept working. And there was a priest blog that they would write this stuff on that, um, you know, the bishop would read and stuff, and I was like, these guys have way too much time on their hands <laughs> thinking about me, you know. So there's, like, a guy out there who runs, like, an anti-media blog about the Catholic Church who I'm, like, his favorite punching bag, and he writes, like, these stories about me and how I'm dishonest and fraudulent and all this stuff, and it's not true, but he finds, like, 
you know when you're on camera and you're like blinking and your eyes are shut for like a millisecond? <laughs> he does like a freeze frame oh of my, my face and puts that as the thing. And, um, and eventually, you know, I tend not to respond to it, but when they're questioning the accuracy of the article, then I do like to respond because you don't ever want people to be questioning, you know, whether you got something wrong. I mean, if you got something wrong, that's okay. Everyone, I've gotten things wrong. I, you know, um, you just address them and, you know, do a correction or whatever. And, and that's what sets us as professional journalists apart from, you know, just grandma with a computer is that we are accountable and we do admit when we're wrong and we're transparent about her. We, you know, we try our best to be, but that's something that I wasn't ready for when I came out of journalism school. That is like part of just a new reality with Twitter and trolls and other things like that. You're going to have to navigate that. But for the most part, I, I do try to just ignore it and try to just kind of stay on the story. Congratulations again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Charlie Specht. A few updates since that conversation. First of all, in late February, the Catholic Diocese in Buffalo declared bankruptcy after victims filed hundreds of lawsuits against the church. Also in February, the long-standing diocese seminary closed for good, citing financial reasons. It seems clergy sex abuse leads to a downturn of charitable contributions. A few days later, an adjunct professor at the seminary was arrested for making death threats against Charlie Specht and the two whistleblowers. That was crazy. Apparently, he'd been harassing the three of them for a while, but at that point, he said in a phone message that he knew where Charlie lived and was coming to kill him. That's when the FBI got involved. The man was arrested, and it's still an ongoing case. As for the whistleblowers these days, Siobhan is still doing well, but Father Richard continues to be punished by the diocese for speaking out. They still have him, quote, on leave, unquote, and apparently they weren't happy about him coming to the DuPont ceremony but he says he would not have wanted to miss it and would do it again. It's such a great evening, so inspiring, and I know the winners are thrilled to be honored. So one more reminder to all of you that if you want a shot at being honored yourself at the 2021 award ceremony, our deadline is fast approaching to enter your best audio and video journalism. Yes, that deadline again, July 1. Check dupont.org for how to enter and email us with any questions. This episode of On Assignment was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. And it was produced by J School grad, Christina Shaman. We also had help from our DuPont fellows, Carissa Quimbao and Jack Rossiter-Munley. And as always, our production coordinator, Lauren Marigildo Santos. And we should say those DuPont fellows just graduated. So big congratulations to Carissa and Jack. That's right. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journal. Until next time. <laughs>